Well, I invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. So as you're turning there, remember last week, in the previous section, Paul had been talking to the church about uh, being prepared for the coming day of the Lord. And he told them that the way to be prepared for Christ's coming is to, number one, be awake and alert. Number two, be sober. And number three, to wear and make use of the armor of God consisting of the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. So if you look at verse 8, Paul again says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So in verses 9 through 11, Paul is now going to expand on this idea of the hope of our salvation. That's going to be the focus. Now the hope, as we have, I'm sure we all know in the Bible, is different than the way we use the word hope oftentimes today. Uh, usually today we use the word hope uh, to refer to something that we're not convinced that's going to happen. We may say, gee, I hope it rains this week. It ain't going to happen, looks like. But we want it, we hope that it comes, but it's probably not going to be realized. But in the Bible, when it talks about our hope in Christ, it has none of that uncertainty associated with it. It has a rock-solid certainty, a firm conviction, a solid confidence, because the hope that we have in Christ is based on a God who cannot lie and His promise that cannot fail. So we have a confident hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is going to do in verses 9-11, through 11, he's going to double down on the certainty of our future salvation. So with that in mind, may the Spirit of God bless us as we read His inspired words. So verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. And may God bless the reading of His Word. This certainty of our hope, I think, is a message that we need to hear today because we live in a world with much uncertainty, don't we? Will our economy survive the reckless and out-of-control debt that we have accumulated over the last few years? You know what it's up to now? Almost $33 trillion dollars. And it's growing leaps and bounds every second. Will our war, our participation in the war in Ukraine, will it cause us to go to war with Russia? 
Who will win the next presidential election and what effect will that have on our country? Will our open borders policy radically transform America as it seems to be doing? And will the AI that is coming into our society, will it ultimately control and dominate our lives? There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty that we live with in this world. On a spiritual level, many wrestle with uncertainty as well. Am I really saved? When I die, am I sure that I will go to heaven? So we can have an uncertainty about the assurance of our salvation. So with all this uncertainty, we need to anchor ourselves in what is certain. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to describe to us in this passage. Now Benjamin Franklin wrote in a letter that in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. That's not exactly true. A lot of people don't pay income tax. They may pay sales tax. And not everybody's going to die. The last generation of the saints will not die. But what is certain in life? Well, one thing that is certain is that God's elect, God's saints will be saved. This is our certain and confident hope. That is the hope of salvation in verse 8. That when Jesus Christ returns, all of His people, all of His children will be saved. And that is a confident certainty in the midst of all the uncertainty of life that can bring great encouragement to God's people. So this truth of Christ's coming and the salvation that He brings with Him can not only help those struggling with the assurance of their salvation, but give us an anchor for our faith in this crazy, chaotic world. Well, let's look at this certainty. If you look at verse 9, the certainty of our future salvation is spelled out at the beginning of verse Nine. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. And let me start by making a few comments on this word destined. Uh, your Bible, I think the King James has appointed, but God has destined or appointed us not for wrath, but for salvation. And that's pretty certain. The word destined here means to assign someone a new condition. And it really joins with the idea of God's election. We are destined for salvation because we've been chosen and elected for salvation. Look at how Jesus used this same word in John 15 verse 16. He says to His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed, that's our word, appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So God has not only chosen us, 
for salvation and for service. But He has also appointed us to that role as well. It's interesting for those who know Greek, the word for, let me move forward, the word for destined is in the middle voice, which indicates that this is something that God alone does. God Himself destined. God alone is the one who's behind this action. It's not based on the will of man. It's not based on the works of man. It is God's will alone. God has not destined His people for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. You can see this that even Paul and, uh, and our Lord has emphasized this similar idea. He says, Paul says in Romans 9, it does not depend, that is your salvation does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God is sovereign in this. Jesus said that the one who believes in His name were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is God's in control. God has destined us for salvation. So this is totally the work of God. Uh, So much so that even our very faith is something that God has granted to us. Notice how Luke speaks of it in Acts 13, of when Paul was preaching, and people were getting saved. They were believing. But why were they believing? As many as were appointed to eternal life by God, believed. So God destined them to salvation, and as a working out of that election, they believed. Paul says in Romans 12, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Your faith is God-given. And in Philippians 1, one of the gifts that God gives to every believer is to have faith and also to suffer for His name's sake. So what Paul is saying in verse 9 is that our future salvation is absolutely certain Because it's grounded in God's predestinating grace. His decision actually made before the foundation of the world when He chose us. But that is rock solid. That is certain. So that our future salvation is certain because of what God and God alone has done. It's interesting. All other religions tell a man what he must do to be saved. You got to do this. You got to do that if you want to go to heaven. But only Christianity tells us what has already been done for us. We just receive it as a free gift through repentance and faith. That's why John Calvin could say that there cannot be a better assurance of salvation gathered than from the decree of God. And one of the Greek lexicons, Thayer, actually translates the word destined as decreed. That's how certain it is. God has decreed it. He has predestined it. It will come to pass. All of His children will obtain salvation. And then he goes on to say that there's something that you have not been destined to and something you have been destined to. So there's a negative and a positive here. The negative is that God has not destined us for wrath. Now this word wrath, of course, 
as I understand it, is in most commentaries that I've read anyway, refer to the future eschatological wrath of God. It's being contrasted with salvation, so it's damnation. It's God's ultimate final wrath. His judgment. It's the same word that she's back in chapter 1, verse 10, that the believers were waiting for Christ to come from heaven whom the Father raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Same word, same concept. Paul says in Romans 2 that the stubborn, unrepentant unbelievers are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's the idea. So what Paul is saying, God is predestined that His children are not going to suffer the wrath of God. Now that's wonderful. Praise God for that. It's the good news that we are not destined for wrath. Why? Because we have put our faith and trust only in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for us because Christ took it away. So when Christ comes back and the great white throne judgment takes place, then all the unbelievers will be destined for wrath. They'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. But we will not be among them. That's what Paul is emphasizing. We have not been destined for wrath like others. We will not experience the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer and black darkness, the furnace of fire with unquenchable and eternal fire or the torment day and night forever and ever. We deserve it, but it will not be delivered to us. We've been delivered from it by Christ. This is really an important point to make, I think, in our day and age. Because God's wrath really doesn't sit well with unbelievers today. And also it doesn't sit well with some evangelicals today. They want to turn down the heat, literally, on the doctrine of hell and judgment and wrath. Their idea is that uh, we will not suffer God's wrath. No one really will, ultimately. And the new belief system, it goes something like this, I'm really not all that bad, and God is really not all that mad. So they undermine and dilute what the Bible says about sin, and then they dilute and distort the very character of Almighty God. And that's happening in places within the church. Now, granted, the idea that sin deserves death and and wrath These are doctrines that make us shudder and recoil. I mean, these are are doctrines that are incredibly sobering and certainly should, should spur us in evangelism. But you cannot have a just and a holy God if He doesn't punish sin. If you worship a God... That, or believes in a God that doesn't punish sin, then you have created a God out of your own imagination. 
you have created a God that fits with what you think is right and proper in this world. And that is not the God of the Bible. You've just invented your own God. Because the God of the Bible throughout the Scriptures is not only a God of infinite love, He is a God of infinite righteousness and infinite holiness. And a righteous God would be unjust if He did not punish sin and those who break His law. He would be unjust. So people who go that route have created a God that they like better because He's all love and basically nothing else, but He's an unjust God. And that is not what the Bible says. Paul is very clear. God has not destined us for wrath. Others have been, sadly. We need to carry the love of God and offer the Gospel to them, but the wrath of God is one of His holy attributes. To wink at sin or not punish evil would make God like any of the judges today who take the law and they distort it or they neglect it or they throw it out. An unjust judge. That's who God would be. We can't, obviously, we cannot allow for that. To deny the wrath of God or explain it away is a manifestation of our own sin nature that doesn't like God as He has revealed Himself So we want to fashion Him after our own image. And that's not a God. That's an imaginary creature that we have created. So Paul is very clear in this verse that by His mercy and grace He has not destined His children for wrath. Hallelujah. Because that is what we deserve. Paul is very clear in Ephesians 2 that by nature, we all in this room this morning are by nature children of wrath. That is what we deserve. But by His grace and mercy and love, He has rescued us from what we deserved. And to Him be eternal glory and praise. So he goes on and now adds a positive. You've not been destined or predestined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. The word obtain here doesn't imply or mean that we do something to earn it or merit it. You can't. It's not based on your righteousness. Salvation cannot be. It's never good enough. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. The word obtain salvation, obtaining, we do obtain it individually by personal faith in Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever and you want to be saved and you want to be forgiven, you must personally turn from your sin and believe in Christ alone for salvation and then you obtain salvation. But it's nothing else apart from faith and repentance. We are appointed to eternal life for salvation by the grace of God. And notice that when Paul writes this in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation, Paul is quite confident that the majority of his readers in the church of Thessalonica are going to heaven. Or he wouldn't write it this way. 
He says, God has destined us for salvation. So he is confident. He has the assurance of their salvation. Which is kind of an interesting thing. Now, why does he have the assurance of their salvation? Remember back up in verse 8. He has seen in them and witnessed in them that beautiful triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, he referenced their faith and hope and love. He had seen it in action. And if you're struggling with this assurance of your salvation, one of the things that can help is to evaluate yourself. Do you see within your heart, within your life, any faith, hope, or love? Because that's the evidence of the new birth. Do you see faith in Christ alone to save you? Do you have love for God and love for the brethren? Do you have a hope of this coming salvation? Not that it's going to be perfect because we're still going to stumble about and struggle with our sin, but do you see any of that? Because that will help you in the assurance of your salvation. Well, Paul saw it in them, so he's quite confident that God has destined them for salvation. Certainly the majority within the church that he knew about. This uh, salvation, obtaining salvation, I think goes back to verse 8, the hope of salvation. This future glorious salvation that is certain for God's people because God has predestined His chosen people to salvation. So it's that future glory. And Paul is confident that God has predestined all believers to obtain that future consummation of our salvation. So it's a wonderful thing. Now notice what he says, why we have that hope, why we have been destined for obtaining salvation. It's all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who becomes the means of our salvation. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. It's all through what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. This, uh, this name of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is just packed with theological significance. The word Lord is interesting. In the Greek, it's kurios, but in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, it oftentimes is used for God's name Yahweh. So that the word Lord in the New Testament when it's applied to Jesus Christ is in effect identifying Him as the Yahweh of the Old Testament. In other words, He's God. And believing that Jesus is the Lord, that He is equal with God the Father in every way, is essential for our salvation. Because a finite creature can't take away our sin. So Jesus is fully God. He's Lord. He's Yahweh in human flesh. And again, it's essential for our salvation. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Believing that Jesus is God is also essential for our sanctification. Because part of the Christian life is living under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus. Not that we do it perfectly, but if there's none of that, then again, the faith is subject. 
Remember, Peter said, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's something we need to do every day, but that's how we live out our Christian life. Set apart Christ as my Lord, my Sovereign, my King, my God, my Master. That's what that's implying. The name Jesus is also equally sweet and and appropriate. The name Jesus basically means Yahweh is salvation and it describes the ministry of Jesus. He came to save us from our sins. Remember when the angel appeared to Joseph in Matthew 1. And he said, Mary's going to have a baby and you will call His name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. God is salvation or Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. That's exactly what He did. That's what He did on the cross. So it's a beautiful name that speaks to the atoning work of our Savior. And then the word Christ, of course, means the Anointed One or Messiah. So now what Paul in the New Testament is referencing that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the prophecies and promises and types of the Old Testament Jewish Messiah. There's over 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah. Jesus fulfilled them all. There's all kinds of types and pictures and and other references to the Messiah. And all of that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He came to accomplish and, and bring the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament that believing Jews are a part of and then believing Gentiles are grafted into that kingdom as well. Christ is the King. He's the Messiah who brings and reigns over the kingdom that was promised to Him. So all of these names are incredibly uh, precious and powerful in describing who our Savior is. But then notice what He did in verse 10. He died for us. And here Paul gets, in a very truncated, brief way, he describes the atonement and the theology that no doubt he had discussed in great detail when he was there among them. But here he just simply reminds them of of a summary statement when he said that Jesus Christ died for us. And packed in that phrase is a lot of incredible theology. There's the sacrifice of Christ, the substitution of Christ, and the satisfaction of Christ. First off, He's our sacrifice. He died. He's the Lamb of God that that died for us. He bore the curse of the law. He died the death that we deserve to die. He bore the wrath that we deserve to, to, to bear. He died. He was our sacrifice. He bore the wages of sin, which is death. Not just a mere flogging or painful affliction. He actually died for us. And here's the marvel of it. Letting Isaiah fill in some of the, the information here. In Isaiah 9.6, this child would be born to us, a son will be given to us, a government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called, and here are the names of Christ, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, this baby is going to be God incarnate. But then what is he going to do? 
Later on in Isaiah 53, the Spirit of God gave Isaiah another prophecy that this same Messiah who is wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, will be smitten of God and afflicted. He will be put to death. He will be sacrificed for us. It's incredible. And not only that, He will be our substitute when He died for us. He died in our place, which is what Paul meant back in verse 9, or verse 10 actually of 1 Thessalonians 5. He died for us, that is, on our behalf and in our place. So that in Isaiah 53 verse 5, He was pierced through for who? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. You see, He was a sacrifice, but He was also our substitute. He came and He died for His elect. He died for His bride. He died for His church. He died for His sheep. He died for His body. He died for His temple. He died as our substitute in our place. He died. And He gave Himself that we might be saved. And then referencing back, He died for us in 1 Thessalonians 5.10. There's a third aspect of His death. It was a sacrifice. It was a substitute. And it was a satisfaction. Because when Jesus died... He entirely, perfectly, completely satisfied the full justice that our sins deserve. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 11. As a result of the anguish of His soul, referencing His suffering on the cross for our sins, He, I understand it to be God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. And by His knowledge of the righteous one, My servant will justify the many and He will bear their iniquities. The Father saw the suffering of Christ and He was satisfied. His law was satisfied. His wrath was satisfied. His justice was satisfied. Jesus took away all of the curse and the punishment for our sins. So that when He said it is finished, on the cross, and He gave up His Spirit, there is no more wrath in the cup of God's anger left. He drank every drop of it. It was dry. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I feel for those that are continually trying to earn their salvation thinking that somehow, some way, they can just be righteous enough to earn their own personal righteousness that when they die, they'll go to heaven. That's a fool's dream. That's a false gospel. Christ did it all. You either trust Him or you're off in some kind of a work salvation gospel that will not save because you're trusting in yourself rather than trusting in the finished work of Christ. If Christ bore all of our sins, if Christ took away all the wrath of God, there is nothing more certain in this universe 
that all for whom he died will one day be with him in heaven in glory forever. There's no sin left to punish them for. Christ has done it all. That's why Jesus could say in John 10, I, referring to his sheep, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, that's glorious. Jesus says, I hold my sheep and nothing can take them out of my hands. And then they're also wrapped with the Father's hands Two sets of omnipotent hands and nothing can pry them open. Nothing can snatch them out. That's where our certainty comes from. It's in what God has done. He holds us. That's what our salvation is based on. Not our hold of Him. He holds us. So Christ is satisfied the justice of the Father on the cross and has indicated that by the fact that it has accomplished the intended goal. That goal is stated in verse 10 so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. We will live together with Him. That's our salvation. That's the consummation. When Christ comes back, We will be gathered to Him and we will live with Him. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 17, Paul is really repeating his uh, main thought of chapter 4. He closes chapter 4 by saying we shall always be with the Lord. And here he says at the end of this section, we, we will live together with Him. We'll always be with Him. We'll live together with Him. You see, Christ died that we might live. And we live with Him now in sanctification, of course, but I think Paul has primarily in mind that we will live with Him forever on the new earth in glory when He returns. And that will be true regardless of our outward circumstances, whether you're awake or asleep. Whether you're awake, I think Paul means whether you're alive or whether you're asleep, whether you're dead. This is how I used it back up in chapter 4. That believers who die are asleep in Jesus. And I think that's what he means here. So all, all the saints are going to live with, with Christ forever in heaven. Those who are awake and alive when He comes back. And also those who will have died by the time He comes back. doesn't matter what our circumstances are. Whether a believer is awake or asleep, he will live with Christ forever. The point being that death, not even death, has any victory over the child of God. When Christ returns and the last trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will be resurrected and the perishable will put on the imperishable and the mortal will put on immortality so that death is swallowed up in victory. So Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, and where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Christ has borne it. He has conquered it. And we have the victory over death in our glorified, resurrected, risen Savior. And that's why Jesus could say in John 11, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. We will live with him forever. Now this is a certainty, uh, beloved, that you can take to the bank. There's nothing in the universe that can stop God's people from inheriting God's salvation. The decree of God has decreed that we will obtain salvation. The blood of the Lamb has been shed and spilt to pay the entire debt that we owe to God so that God's people will be saved and live with Christ forever. And then he concludes it in verse 11. Here's the the wrap-up. Here's the application. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. You've been doing this? Yeah, you've been doing it some, but you can do it better. You can do it more. Encourage one another and build up one another. Again, he's ending the same way he ended chapter 4, where he ended with the words, therefore comfort one another with these words. Now it's encourage one another, build up one another. So the, the word to comfort or encourage here in verse 11 just means for those who are anxious about the future, those who get depressed and discouraged by all the uncertainty that we live in, be encouraged. There are things that are certain that are going to take place in the future. And let your joy be rooted in that. Don't let all the uncertainty of the world around us drag us down. There are some things that are absolutely certain. And Christ's return and our salvation and glory are some of them. So encourage one another with those words. If you're anxious, believe what God has told us. And then build up one another. The certainty of our future salvation should motivate godly living today. So that Paul really wants to give the church, I think he wants to give this church, Northwest Bible Church, a strong confidence in our hope. The hope of salvation, verse 8. And that hope is rooted in God's destination. His sovereign election. It's It's a confidence that is something that we can certainly rely on because nothing can cause it to fail. And they needed to be encouraged by this encouragement because of the persecution that they were going through, the affliction, the suffering that the church at Thessalonica was enduring, the uncertainty of what's going to happen to the church. They need to understand the certainty of their future. That God has it predestined. So they need to be encouraged. They need to to revitalize their hope of salvation and let that give them the encouragement and build up one another based upon these truths. Their hope of salvation, again, is rock solid. It's a certainty because it's a part of God's decreed plan for His church. I love the words of Romans 8 that Paul spoke to the church at Rome which emphasizes again the certainty that we have in Christ, that solid hope of salvation. When he wrote in Romans chapter 8, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that your confidence this morning? Do you have that hope? Do you have that faith and hope and love which is evidence of the new birth within your heart? And if you do not, Christ stands as a ready Savior for you. He invites you to come to Him, to turn from your sin, to place your faith and confidence only in Him, not in yourself. And He will not only forgive you of your sins, but He'll give you the strong, certain hope of salvation. Believe in Christ. Receive the gift. And go to heaven. Go to glory. Again, our salvation is confident because it's been predestined. It's been paid for by Christ on the cross. He died for for us. And it's been promised that God says that we will live with Him. So the confidence we have of this is not rooted in us. It's rooted in our God who cannot lie and His promise which cannot fail. So when Christ returns and when the morning star rises in our hearts, when Christ comes back to glorify His people, He will make us jewels to adorn His crown. Because all the glory goes to Him.